Romans 4. spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not, own, not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had, what he had promised he was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. So let's take a little step back like we always do, do a little bit of review. Um, obviously, we know Paul writing to the Roman Christians here. Paul, in his writing to the Christians, says that I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. So he was ready to preach the gospel to the believers that were there too. Not The gospel wasn't only for unbelievers. Like I mentioned last week, it wasn't just that you preach the gospel to, so you enter into the kingdom, but it's something that even when you're in the kingdom, the gospel was preached to you, should be by others and by yourself to grow in the faith. So it's for believers and unbelievers alike. Um, but before he began what we call his exposition of the gospel, he goes to the bad news first, right? Because the gospel is good news. And before he got into the good news, he started in Romans 1 and verse 18, it says, but the wrath of God is now revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And he goes from Romans 1.18 all the way to Romans 3.20 dealing with law and dealing with how the Gentile was guilty before God and the Jew was guilty before God. And then he deals with all mankind is guilty before God. And remember he not only said that all are sinners, but all parts of us are sinful too. Remember that in Romans chapter 3 he says the mouth is sinful. Your eyes, your thoughts, your hands, your feet are sinful. So not only all men are sinful, but all of man is sinful. And then remember verse 20, verse chapter 3 and verse 21, he says, but now, but God, right? That's what he goes through and deals with the law, deals with guiltiness of man, then he says, but God. Those refreshing words, right? But God manifests his righteousness without the law. Because what did the law bring? We saw for two chapters, almost three chapters, all it brought was death. All it brought was guiltiness. All it brought about was that man's mouth might be stopped before God. And then he gets to verse 21 and says, But God, without the law, has manifest his righteousness. And remember in ending chapter 3 there, he, deal, he, he pretty much proclaims justification by faith alone. The fact that we stand before God just perfectly righteous, perfectly holy by faith alone. Not by our works. Why? Because our, he's already dealt with your works. And then he goes starts in chapter 4 here and he says, pretty, pretty much he doesn't say this, but in my words, pretty much says that in case you didn't believe justification by faith alone, let me point you back to Abraham, who was before the law, 
who was before circumcision, and how was he justified? By faith alone. He was justified 14 years before his circumcision, so he couldn't have been justified by his circumcision. He was justified 430 years before the law came, so he couldn't have been justified by the law. And in that right now in our context here, he is dealing with this still. He says, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. Remember last week we dealt with when it says, God says, I have made thee a father of many nations. He's, God said that to Abraham. Abraham hadn't even had Isaac yet. So he didn't have a son yet. He was almost 100 years old. His wife was barren and God said, I have made you a father of many nations. And that's what it goes against here. Who against hope believed in hope. That's my first point. Is the hope believed. It says, uh, who against hope believed in hope. Or it could be translated, who against expectations or confidence believed in hope. So let's deal with the negative first of this. Who against hope. Or who against expectations. Remember last week I mentioned that, and it's in our following text here, but what was the natural hope or expectation of a 99-year-old man and his barren wife to have a child. What were their expectations? I mean, they're 99. I'm 99 years old. My wife's barren. I, they have no expectation of a child, right? There was their real expectation was what? To die. And to die without a child. That's it. At 99, you're not thinking about um, where I'm going to go to college. Maybe I'm going to go purchase my first house, right? You know, these kind of thoughts aren't going through your mind. You're not thinking about the family that you're about to start making when you're 99 years old and your wife's barren. All they could expect from the natural was to die. They're, the only thing that they could have been planning at 99 years old was their funeral. That's it. That's their next big step was the funeral. It was not a child. They should have if they hadn't already got their affairs in order to die. That was their only real next step. Not only was Abraham 99, and, and you know he had, he had one foot in the grave and the other on a banana field, but his wife was barren. So not only am I about to die, but my wife's barren. There could be no expectation of a child. This, one, this is from actually Genesis 18 11, where it says, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. Sarah was past childbearing. She was past childbearing. They were both old and not a chance of bearing a child. This kind of should remind us of some New Testament narratives, too, of women that shouldn't be pregnant. Right? Mary, being a virgin, should have been pregnant, right? And we saw Elizabeth with the with the 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 birth of John the Baptist, she was barren too. She was barren. She shouldn't have had a child either. So this wouldn't be the only time that God would work a miracle and, and, and make a woman conceive who shouldn't have conceived. However, it took God for it to happen. It was against all natural expectations. Against all natural hope. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Exactly. Hey, Zach, do me a favor. My cup is right back there. Um, Hebrews 11, 11. 
Jesse, are you here? Will you read 11 and 12? By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even though she was past age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as he, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the unnumerable grains of sand by the seashore. You see that? She was past age. She was past the childbearing. It was, it was done. It was over. She couldn't have a child. She's past the age, right? The natural said that she was past the age of childbirth. It says Abraham. What does it say of Abraham in this text? I mean, if you you have something written about you, that's not really something that you want. Who is as good as dead? He was as good as dead, and his wife was. I think that was, uh, I'm blaming Levi. <laughs> so he was as good as dead, and his wife was past the age of childbearing. But what was their response? It says, she judged him faithful, who had promised. Who promised this? God did, right? She, so they trusted God. Not the natural hope, not your natural expectations, not what if you go to the doctor, hey doc, I'm 99 years old, we're thinking about having a child. Sorry, it's not happening. But God said, I have made thee the father of many nations. So their natural expectation was no, it couldn't happen, but they trusted in God. In reality, the only thing they trusted in was his word, right? They trusted his word. God said, I have made thee. But I don't have a child. How have you made me a father of many nations when I'm not even the father of one nation yet? And I'm 99 years old. And in a few thousand years, you're going to write about me that I'm as good as dead. And my wife's barren. He said he would do it. He didn't even give him a vision or anything, right? There's no vision. There's no, hey, look, let me pull back the curtain. Look, this is what life's going to be like in two years. He just said, I've made you a father of many nations. And then I see, right? He doesn't point to the past. God doesn't point to the past and said, look, I've done this before. Why? Because he had never done it before. What past could Abraham look back to? There was no past point to point to. He gave no vision. He simply said, I have made you a father of many nations, and your seed shall be like the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. That's all they had to trust in. God's word. That's it. Is that not enough? That's a question for us, right? Is that not enough? I mean, if God says he will do something, will he do it? If God promises something, will he keep his promise? Even when it's against all natural expectations. That's a big expectation too, right? A child at 100 years old and a barren wife. That's a big promise. Yet, what does it say there? They trusted in him. Why? For the same reason I, I, 
I thought about this when I was going through For the same reason that Peter said in John chapter 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are you going to go? God said you're going to have a child, and through that child, the seed would come, and, and, and it would be like the stars in the sky and the sands of the seashore. Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's the positive of this, though. We dealt with the negative. It was against all natural hope. It was against all natural expectations. Naturally, at 99 years old, you're not thinking about a child. But the positive is God's word. He said it. Trust in him. But the hope, he believed. It says, who against hope, believed in hope. The hope is the hope that God keeps his word. That's, the hope we, that's all of the hope we have here today, right? That God keeps his word. Not just in giving him a son, though. Not just in giving Abraham a son, but more importantly, in the hope that God would give his son. Right? That's what we see Isaac as a picture of Christ, right? Thy son, thy only son, who he went to sacrifice? It was a picture of Christ. And that's, that's what the whole picture was. It wasn't the seed, as we saw a few weeks ago, when and Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, the seed wasn't Isaac. The seed wasn't Jew or Gentile. The seed was Christ. And through Christ, through that seed, he would bless many nations. He would have descendants, an innumerable amount of descendants. Nah. So even though this was a legit promise to Abraham about giving him a son, it was a picture about what God would do in the future. He would give Mary a son who was a virgin and against hope believed in God. Right? I just mentioned this in my notes there. Remember the seed wasn't about Isaac, it was about Christ. So the hope wasn't simply that God would give him a son. It wasn't simply that God would give him Isaac. Isaac would just grow up, grow old, and die. That wasn't the hope. The hope was God would give him a son. Isaac would grow up and produce a family. And through those, through those descendants, the, the Messiah would come. That would be the Savior of the world. That's the hope in which Abraham believed. Jesus says in uh, John chapter 8, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. That's the real hope. That's the real expectation that Abraham had. It wasn't simply that God was going to give me a son. He's just going to grow up and grow old and die like I am. Right? It was that through that son, God would bring his son, whom would save many nations. And this isn't the term like we like to use it today, like hope, right? We like, oh, I just hope this thing will happen. I, I really hope this happens today. This was a confident resting in the promise of God. God promised it. That's the hope. I believe it. It will happen. It was trusting in God to save the world through his seed, which is Christ. But the first step was providing a son for Abraham. For without the son of promise... There would be no seed of the woman that would crush this, head, this serpent's head, right? 
This is trusting in God with no natural expectation, but with a supernatural expectation. Trusting that God will go against the natural and keep his promise. That's what he did there. And we see this over and over again in Scripture, don't we? We could go to the, to, to the Exodus, right? And what did God do with, in the Exodus? He brings his people out. What does he do? He parts the sea. The natural says that can't happen, right? We still have scientists today that say that's impossible. That couldn't happen. It was the Reed Sea. It wasn't the Red Sea. The water was, you know, this deep in the Reed Sea so they could walk across it. It was the Red Sea. And God parted it. That's against the natural. He led them with a pillar of smoke and fire, right? How many times have you guys been out in the wilderness and saw a pillar of smoke and fire leading you somewhere? Never, right? He fed them with manna from heaven. Once again, how many times have you been hungry and all of a sudden some bread fell from heaven for you? It doesn't happen, right? They were thirsty. What happened? Moses broke a rock and water come out? This isn't what... We don't, we don't get fed from bread falling from heaven and breaking open rocks and drinking out of them. It was against the natural expectation. God does this. It was all against the natural. And I can go, we can go on, obviously. We can go through the whole covenant and see over and over again, story after story, and, and seeing God do this. But I think this one example should suffice. He went against the natural expectation in bringing his son into the world to save sinners. Right? God went against the natural expectation, against the natural hope to bring his son into the world to save sinners. The natural said Mary couldn't be born. Mary couldn't be pregnant, right? She was a virgin. It was against natural hope. It was against natural expectation. Then he what then what did he do? He perfectly fulfilled the law. Who here has done that? My hand was not because I did it. <laughs> None of us can. Why? Because as it says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, it says the, the carnal mind, the natural mind, cannot obey the things of God. Cannot. It says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the natural man cannot even understand spiritual things. That's against the natural. The natural goes out and does as Paul has shown us in Romans 1 through 3. And disobeys. Yet God sent his son, born of a virgin. He perfectly fulfilled the law. And he was crucified, right? By wicked men. And then what? And then what happened, right? Is this natural? When he was crucified three days later, what happened? He come up out of the grave. Against natural expectation. Nobody thought when Christ went into the, into the grave, he was going to come out. Actually, his disciples lost hope, right? He's dead. He's gone. Jesus is gone. But he came out of the grave, defeating death. That's against the natural. This goes against everything that we know as men and women. Yet our God is what? He's supernatural God, right? He created nature and has control of it. Now today, this is the hope in which we believe, is it not? This is the hope, same hope that Abraham believed, even though it was a future hope. We believe in the same hope. 
That God, through that seed, is going to bless many nations. And that seed being Christ. And we look back to Christ. Right? And we still have a hope. We still have a future hope as Christians. Do we not? That there would be a consummation. That Christ will come back and wrap this whole thing up. Right? And he's sitting on his throne right now. Ruling and reigning. That's how we can go to prayer. We all, we all went to the throne this morning. You go, to, you, go to, you go in prayer, you go to the throne. How can you do that? Because Christ is sitting there. And that was the hope that he believed in. The next point here is the strength of faith. Let's go back to Romans. says, who against hope, believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Let me tell you what this does not mean. This does not mean Abraham was strong. And mighty. That's not what this means. We don't look at Abraham and think he must have been a strong and mighty person, right? This said this he was actually weak, right? And as good as dead. He wasn't strong. He was he was about to perish. It means he was strong in faith. Which means he rested in God's strength, not his own. So how do we get this strength? Turn with me to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Zach, can you get the reread to 7 through 10? It says, Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation that was given to me, born in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, the buffet of me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord Christ, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in the infirmities, in the reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Can you see it there? When I am weak, then I am strong. It's not that Abraham was strong. It was he was strong in faith. How? Because he recognized that he was weak and I must rest in the strength of God. When I am weak, then I am strong. The Apostle Paul, of all people, right, who goes around planting churches and facing death, and, I mean, we can, we can turn to those passages. He, how many times he faced death? He had 39 lashes, right? He was stoned. Yet Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. It's a recognition that you're weak. That's what being strong in faith is. It's a recognition that, that you must rest in the strength of God, not in your own strength. I mean, honestly, what did Abraham have to boast about in having a son? 
What, what could he boast about in having this son? The scripture says he was as good as dead. He had nothing to rest in, in and of himself. And not only that, he couldn't rest in his spouse either because she was barren. It says the, the, the deadness of her womb. Let me ask you, have you ever been there? I don't mean old and barren. I just mean when you know that God is your only hope. That's it. Have you been there? If you're a Christian, here today, you most certainly at least been there once. When you realize you've sinned against the holy God, right? And you deserve nothing but judgment. You deserve nothing but hell. You deserve nothing but punishment. You could not rest in yourself. You could not look to the commandments and say, well, I've, God, I've kept these. Because you know that all you've ever done is broken them. You couldn't rest in yourself. You know, the, you had to rest in Him. That was it. And if that wasn't enough, you could do nothing else. Right? That's really what, what, what Christianity is, right? That I'm a sinner. I've broken God's law. I'm headed to hell. I mentioned this one went over irresistible grace. But God revealed His Son to me. And I wanted nothing else. Why? Because He was irresistible. Because I see my sins paid for by Him. Not that I, that, not, not that I looked to the law and thought I, I need to lace up my bootstraps and, and get to work, right? It was resting in Him. So you've been there as a Christian. When your only hope was to pray and rest in Him. But what about this? Have you been here in your Christian life since you've been a Christian? When your only hope was to rest and pray, right? To pray and rest in Him. That's the only hope you have. Even though you're already a Christian, maybe you're a Christian for 10 years, and you get to the point where the only answer is resting in God and praying to Him because I can do nothing else. Maybe for the salvation of a loved one, right? Maybe for the health of somebody. You have no control over this stuff, right? As much health advice as you can give to somebody, we're all dying. And what does this show us? It shows us that we are weak in those times, but we should be strong in faith. And what does that look like? It means going to the throne of grace, begging God to do something that you can't do. It also means that maybe maybe you're fasting, right? Maybe you're fasting because you can't eat. Because you're so broken, I just can't eat. Or purposely, either way. It means that you're going to His Word to find out what He would tell you in this situation. You've been there, Christian? I couldn't give you any more advice. I don't know what else to tell you. I don't know what else to tell myself. I'm going to His Word. I'm going to His throne. That's it. How many times we've been there and God answers those prayers, though? That's the strength of faith. Faith is resting in Him. Even when it is, even when it is but a little faith, it is stronger than all the might of all the men in the world. Why? Because we are resting in the Almighty. Turn to me in Mark chapter four or chapter seven. It's 
He arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon and entered into a house. And would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. For a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Seraphonician by nation, and she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of his daughter, out of her daughter. But Jesus said unto her, Let not the let the children first be filled, for it is not to take the children's bread and to cast it unto dogs. And she answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, For this saying, Go thy way, the devil is gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the devil gone out, and her daughter laid upon the bed. What did she, she had faith in the crumbs of Christ, right? Though, Lord, you are feasting in Israel right now, though you are feeding the Israelites right now, please let a crumb drop for me. Just a crumb. I don't need a feast. A crumb will save my daughter. Nobody can heal her, Lord, but you. Please heal her. That's the strength of faith, right? That's, that's her. The, the only answer she had was, I need to go to this Jesus and get whatever he can give me to heal my daughter. There's another example in Matthew chapter 8. We won't go there. But if we're, where a centurion begs Christ to heal his servant, it says, who is sick of the palsy. Jesus said, and Jesus says, I'll come heal him. I'll come heal him. And he says, no, Lord. I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. Just speak the words and my servant shall be healed. That little faith. Though he was a centurion, and it says in, that, in those texts that he commands men to go and they go. He commands them to come and they come. Men, listen to this man. If he told you to do something, you would do it. Yet he had no power to heal his servant. All the power he could tell men to go and come and they'd go and come, but he had not the power to heal a servant. What does he do? He goes to Christ. He was weak, but strong in faith. Just say the, Lord, the word, Lord, and he shall be healed. Centurions were, you know, the, some of the strongest in that society. They're the soldiers. They're the men that you'd be scared of. And he was weak. Came to heal the Not only that, but he realized how strong Christ was. He realized Christ was strong in this, and he was weak. Christ didn't need to come to his house. And tell me that's not faith, right? You don't need to come to my house. You don't need to lay hands on him. You don't need to put oil on him. All you need to do is speak, Lord, and he will be healed. What little faith. That's the strength of faith. Lord, I trust you and only you. You are omnipotent and sovereign. Which takes us to our last point here. The character of God. 
Now I know that many times as Christians we're accused of blind faith, right? That's our accusation. You blind faith, right? But that's not the case. Yes, we trust in one who is invisible in being, but his attributes and his character and his work are on full display, right? Romans 1, when we went through Romans 1, it says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The invisible things are clearly seen. How do you see the invisible? Well, here's case in point, right? In Abraham. No, he couldn't see God. But what does it say? Let's, I'm going to turn back to Romans 4, 21. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform, and therefore is imputed to him for righteousness. He was fully persuaded what he had promised, he was also able to perform. How would he, how would he be fully persuaded? He's created, right? Abraham looked back. He didn't have a whole bunch of history. He didn't have the Old and the New Testament completed canon for him to look back and see the stories, right? But he knew God was creator. If God is creator God and created the worlds out of nothing... He is quite capable of bringing a child into this world, right? From something. This isn't another case of what we would call creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. This is not what happened here. This is more of a, a case of a resurrection. They, they, were, they were already there. They were already created. They were just dead. Abraham is good as dead. Sarah's womb, the deadness of Sarah's womb, God needed to resurrect them. So this was Abraham resting in the character of God there. If he had promised it, he was going to perform it. And he was able to perform it, right? If he didn't perform it, if God promised it and did not perform it, what would that make him? It would make him alive. But what does it say? God which cannot lie. We know scripture says that, right? And I know we, we often say God can do all things, which he can't. Oh, it sounds like heresy, doesn't it? But he cannot lie. Why? Because it goes against his nature and his character. God is true. Right? Didn't Jesus say, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Paul said God is true. It's not just something about him. It's not like... like God who just tells the truth. It is. God is true. Remember, there aren't parts of God. Remember this. Don't, don't confuse it. There are not parts in God. He is true. He is love. He is just. These are the whole of his being are these things, not just parts of him. There's not a part of God that's true and another part that's loving. It's he is true and he is loving. Abraham was fully persuaded because God is true and he said he'd give him a seed. He could not rest in himself or his wife, but gave, God, gave glory to God because remember in verse 17 it says, God quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which are not as though they were. 
So he rested in the character of God to do as he said he would do. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. So the question is, was he, was he counted righteous because God would give him a son? Because he believed God would give him a son? Is that why he was counted righteous? Because God said, I'll give you a son, and therefore you give him a son? That's not all of it. That's not it. It has to do with the seed. Right? Which was Christ. God promised a seed to him that would be as the stars of the sky of the sky and the sands of the seashore. And this seed was Christ. And he rested in God to give him a son because through his son would this seed come which would be the savior of the world. Which would save every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. And that what it says in Revelation 5, 9. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Which is Paul's point, right? This is Paul's point in Romans chapter 4. It was that Righteousness was imputed to Abraham by faith alone, not by works, to prove justification by faith alone. Righteousness is imputed by faith. It says, who believed in hope, and God justifies him. So the thing today is, if you don't know him, that's the call, right? That's the call today. The call is, if you don't know Christ today, it's not that you, you get up and you work hard. It's that you rest in Him. It's that you don't look out to the natural and say, well, I don't see God, therefore, He doesn't exist, right? We know that's not true. His divine attributes, His, his, his character is on full display. They're clearly seen in His creation and by His creation you know that he's real, and you know that you sinned against him. The only hope is trusting in him for salvation. Trusting in the seed of Abraham, which is Christ. So if you don't know him, look to him this morning and repent of your sins before it's too late. Amen. I only have one point of application. I told you, I'm trying to get these things a little bit shorter for you guys. Just as Abraham looked past the natural expectation or hope unto a, a supernatural one, let us do the same. Right? Abraham looked past the natural hope unto a supernatural hope, which was God, let us do the same. What do I mean by that? That God's going to just start producing children? That's not what I'm talking about. Those things that you can't do, and you also have no control over right? Let's look to him with hope. For instance, you have loved ones that aren't saved. We all probably have some. We have loved ones that aren't saved. What can you do about it? Well, first, you can preach the gospel to them, and you should already preach the gospel to them. If you haven't, you have no excuse after today because I just told you to go preach the gospel to your unsaved family members. But even then, as I mentioned when we were going over the irresistible grace the other, the other week, does simply preaching the gospel mean that they'll get a new heart? Absolutely not. Or everybody would be saved, right? We would just get megaphones to go out and just, which we probably should do anyways, but just preaching the gospel to everybody because everybody will get a new heart when we preach the gospel. That's not how it works, right? We preach the gospel to how many people, and, and God chooses to save some. Not all of them. So we preach 
But then what? We hope in God. That's it. Not in the person in whom we preach. Not as though, man, I hope I convince them to believe the gospel. We preach the gospel. And then what can we do? We can rest in God, right? That's what we can do. Because God saved. God gives the new heart. God gives the new mind. God gives faith and repentance. I can't do that in you. And this is against the natural hope. But more resting in the supernatural hope. In the same way that God resurrected Sarah's womb, he can most assuredly resurrect a dead spiritual person. So rest in him. What about God healing someone? I mean, just because I'm a cessationist doesn't mean I don't think God can and does heal people. I believe God miraculously heals people. I do. I don't think he heals everybody or none of us would die, right? I don't think he heals every Christian or none of us would die, right, as a Christian. And I don't think there's healers walking around just like I can lay hands on you and you're healed. Now, can God do that? Oh, yes. However, our God is a healer, right? Nothing's changed, right? God can and does heal people. He does. You know someone with infirmities, or you yourself have them? What can you do to heal them? Right? Why not we have some in our congregation? And I can, I can always say, well, this is the diet that you should be eating. You should be waking up early, exercising, eating right all day, going to bed early, getting some good rest. And then what happens when you wake up the next day and you still feel the same? And the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. And you go a year and you still feel the same. You can do nothing, right? You go to the throne. That's it. Demonstrating the same strength of faith that Abraham had. It's out of your hands. You can do nothing. You're just at the feet of the Lord. And that's a good place to be, right? You know, I think sometimes those infirmities drive us there, and it's a good thing. Just like Paul said, you have thorn in the side. But when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Trusting in God, believing in the supernatural hope, believing in God who quickeneth the dead. If he can raise up a dead man, he most certainly can heal me or whoever it is I'm praying for, right? The question is, are we there? Are we at the throne? Right? Are you like that persistent widow in the parable? It says, she kept going to the judge, and finally the judge says, because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual, continual coming she weary me. Are you like that when you're praying? Or you just say a short prayer in passing about it, right? I think far too often it's the latter, isn't it? Please pray for me, brother. And then you just say it in your mind real quick and totally forget about it. The next day you don't even know it. You don't even remember that you prayed for it. It's a one-time thing and it's nonchalant. And we wonder sometimes why God hasn't answered prayers. Because we just speak it in passing and forget about it. 
Or are you believing in God against natural expectations? Or do you simply believe the, you know, the term K sera sera, right? Whatever will be, will be. Is that what we think? I know some of us Christians think like that sometimes, don't we? We expect to fail. We expect to lose. We expect to be beaten. This is that's not what the apostles and prophets expected. They were almost if I can say the word, flabbergasted. When they failed. When they seen an ungodly prosper and they're like, why, Lord, this doesn't make sense. Read the Psalms. They expected victory. We need more of that today in Christianity. Within our, our Christendom here in America, do we not? We expect to win, right? And I'm not saying this in the, the Joel Osteen type of way. I'm saying this in the sense of when I'm going out preaching the gospel, I expect God to save people. I'm resting in God, right? I'm not going out to preach people and just expecting everybody to walk by with deaf ears. I expect God to open those ears. I expect a victory in that. And even if I never see that person again, I know we, we have that here in Myrtle. I mean, you guys come through for a week. may never see you guys again. This happens all the time here. And I, I may preach the gospel to this person. I may never see them again. I still expect God to save them. And God to plant them in a church wherever they're at. Do we expect that? Or do we just expect failure? Respect, re we expect rejection and failure. We shouldn't. We should expect God to save people. Why? Because He promised it. He's promised that He will save, and He's promised an innumerable amount of Christians. That's what we just read it today, right? More than the sands and the sea. We're at the beach. Like I, I've used this so many times. You want to go out to the beach? I'll get one shovel full and put it in my wheelbarrow. And we can spend all day counting those pieces of sand, right? We won't, we won't even make it through one shovel for This is what he's promised to Christians, though. We should believe that. Not be like, oh, well, you know, the wicked, they're going to reject. But this is what my God does. He saves. This is hoping in a supernatural hope and not against a natural hope. So let's go forth with this attitude today, right? Resting in Christ. And it says that He is always with us, even until the ends of the world. And what He will do, what He says He will do. And that's save His people. Amen.